Hello and welcome to the Free Movement Podcast. I'm CJ McKinney. When he was president of the Supreme Court, Lord Newberger said that access to legal advice and representation is, of course, a fundamental ingredient of the rule of law. That's the case for foreign citizens living in the UK just as much as anyone else, but access to legal advice on immigration law has long been a concern. Joining me to discuss this is Dr. Joe Wilding of Garden Court Chambers and the University of Brighton. She's the author of a new book on the legal aid market, and Naomi Blackwell of Jesuit Refugee Service UK, who works with migrants held in detention centres. Welcome to you both. Hello, thank you. Hi, CJ. Joe, let me start with you. I recently covered an asylum case where a lady paid £200,000 to a high-end city law firm to work on her claim for refugee status. So presumably, when we talk about concerns about access to legal advice, we're not worried about people who have money. If you can pay privately, there are, I imagine, plenty of immigration lawyers around. Yeah, if you've got money to pay, you can find a lawyer in most parts of the country. But of course, because immigration law uh, cases are often complex and long running, it is a significant cost, as in the case that you just mentioned. So when we talk about access to immigration advice and people like you do research into it, we're talking more about people who don't have much money, but they do have a complex immigration problem. Exactly. So if you're eligible for legal aid, that would cover asylum, protection, domestic abuse, some trafficking cases, then you can go to providers that have contracts with the legal aid agency, if you can find one with capacity in your area. If you're not eligible for legal aid, then the sources of free advice are really limited. So where someone's undocumented, has no current leave to remain, young people born in the UK or who have lived most of their lives here but don't have immigration status, often deportation cases don't qualify for legal aid, or of course those Windrush cases where people had a right to remain but no paperwork to prove it. And they're really dependent on charities, but there are well over half a million people thought to be undocumented in the UK and they're dependent on a very few charities with casework capacity in the very low thousands a year so yeah that's absolutely where the problem is that's that's a big gap so yeah I, I mean people sometimes message me on Twitter they're you know they're asking for help and sadly I can't but is the only place I can really tell them to go charities because my head sometimes goes to well there's loads of law centers and citizens advice would they be able to help people like that who are undocumented or, or being targeted for deportation? There are law centers there are far fewer than there used to be about half of them have closed since LASPO um, they are often dealing with the most complex, difficult, long-running problems that private firms just can't afford to take on. But the flip side of that is that law centres can usually only take on a very small number of cases because they're so complex. Um, besides legal aid, there is a whole range of organisations that are accredited by the Office of the Immigration Services Commissioner to do immigration advice at levels one to three. And of course, without that accreditation, it's a criminal offence to provide immigration advice. But Level one is very basic advice and citizens advice are all, their volunteers are all exempt at level one, but it is quite a low level of advice. And there's a real shortage across the country of free level two and three advice and that all of those organisations are heavily dependent on keeping on making funding applications to different bodies, especially as local authority funding for advice agencies gets more and more limited. 
You mentioned private firms not being able to afford to take cases on. I know some would do pro bono work. They might sort of cross-subsidize free work with their commercial work. Does that help fill these gaps you're talking about to any meaningful extent? Yes. So what happens is essentially all of the providers of legal aid that are doing a good quality job are cross-subsidizing because they lose money on every legal aid case they do on the fixed fee. So you've got your fixed fee that covers a certain amount of work. And people said to me, they're generally doing two to two and a half times the amount of work on average that they get paid for. So in order to sort of survive those financial losses on every case, they have to reduce the number of legal aid cases they do. And then, as you say, they cross subsidise with private work or with judicial review work when they win costs or, you know, they're, they're doing some other categories of law, maybe that's higher paid in private work, for example. But then they have to limit the amount of legal aid work they do to what they can raise in cross-subsidy so that they kind of break even. So what you find is that a lot of the good quality private firms that do legal aid work really limit the amount of legal aid work to what they can raise in cross-subsidy. And so you can only reconcile that conflict between financial viability and uh, quality by reducing client access. And you just you cannot maintain all three. Right. So that's interesting. So you can't really be a pure legal aid firm. You have to have a private arm that cross-subsidizes your legal aid sort of contract. Or you have to be obtaining grant funding from some other organisation. So that's what a lot of the charities do, the law centres and so on. And they've got money coming in from some other source that cushions the losses they make on legal aid. Okay, that's interesting. We'll come back then to these problems in more detail a little later, because I know that's the subject of your book. I wanted to bring in Naomi, because so far I've been thinking in terms of migrants who are out and about in society they're able, at least in theory, to go around and find a lawyer, phone a lawyer, email them. But Naomi, you work in detention centres. People there must find it really hard to access, particularly hard to access uh, legal advice because they're behind bars. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you are, for example, held under immigration powers at the moment in prison, you may well still be under 23-hour lockdown. And then while in detention, whole blocks are currently routinely being quarantined across the UK due to the continual COVID outbreaks. And NGOs haven't had access since last year. So we haven't been in since last December to Harmersworth and Colnbrook. I understand that mighty staff still, some still haven't been double vaccinated. And so this is just going to be an ongoing process. But it's not only COVID. It was very hard to get access to a decent solicitor long before COVID joined the chaos. You say that, but legal advice is provided in detention centres, right? There's this duty roster of uh, solicitors. Does that, are you saying that system doesn't work effectively or you don't get particularly good solicitors doing it? Yeah, well, on paper, it looks positively slick, doesn't it? But um, in <laughs> practice, I mean, I don't want to run through every obstacle, but the obvious ones are that not all the solicitors on the duty advice rotor have the level of expertise interest or capacity, as Joe's mentioned later, to take on the large number of complex cases. We've got huge amounts of charters going at the moment. As we know, before Christmas, there was a, a ranking up. And then there's just the endless barriers, the out-of-scope cases, issues getting papers to lawyers. There's no 
you're not allowed internet on your phone. So unlike in Napier, where you can just WhatsApp your documents, you're just limited to when the computer suite is open. What about all the language barriers? And then factor in other vulnerabilities. And, you know, you're really struggling. So if no NGOs are on site, you're wholly reliant on staff within the centre. So we've heard of men being told by mighty staff that they can't have two lawyers and simply refusing to place them on the DDA rotor. And then what about, you know, people who are literate, who have learning disabilities, no mental capacity? I mean, I've, we, I was working with someone who was detained for years, three years without receiving any legal advice. I met three another, years. yep, another at the end of last year in Harmsworth, 20 months he was detained without any access to a solicitor. And all of these men have received large unlawful detention payouts after we've referred them to public law solicitors. It doesn't appear to deter the Home Office and they just plough on because there'll be so many who never come to light that presumably it's worth it. You mentioned Napier, that's Napier Barracks, which is the centre where asylum seekers are being held in Kent, the converted army barracks. It's technically not a detention centre, but I imagine that if you're a quote-unquote resident of that barracks, you would also find it hard to get legal advice, as you've touched on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's quasi-detention. I think this is the way we're going with reception centres and other um, detention centres around the country. So in Napier, it was very difficult because it was done on the hoof. Um, There's only three immigration firms in the whole of Kent. And even if they had enough matter starts, they wouldn't have been able to absorb the four to 500 new cases. And what we're having now, we've got a system of um, men are being brought in, they remain there for 60 to 90 days, and then another two or 300 are brought in. There's just no way any local lawyer would be able to deal with that capacity. And even if we get lawyers from London to come down, who exactly is going to fund that? I mean, that's a whole day out of your office. And we've been desperate. We're desperately trying to refer people to decent solicitors, scouring the country, trying to get representation. And, and most just don't have the capacity. So um, we a young man, victim of trafficking, arrived um, from crossing the channel on a dinghy. He had his phone seized and then he was sent straight to detention where they um, have their screening interviews. But he was subjected to the truncated screening process. So that's the one where they bypass the two key trafficking indicator questions you've already dealt with on your podcast. So they were departing from published policy, which was later challenged in the High Court. Then he was transferred to a hotel in London where he got no assistance or legal advice. Then to Napier, where he was told by staff that a lawyer was for the future. But then that future came quite suddenly because then he was detained and had removal directions set. Um, So that was all a very, very slip. It's quite easy to um, slip through the system, especially with all this shunting around the country. Especially if there's only three law firms in the whole of Kent, which I didn't realise given the amount of migrants who arrived there. And Joe, your research is all about this, right? You've found that there are certain areas of the country where there are very few legal aid lawyers or none at all. You, you refer to legal aid deserts. Yeah, that's right. So there's a map in the book that shows where in England and Wales there are no providers at all. And it's huge areas. The whole southwest of England below Bristol has one legal aid provider. And this is one person in one room with remote supervision doing 50 odd cases a year in an asylum dispersal town, Plymouth, which receives about 350 people a year 
plus unaccompanied children. Swindon is another dispersal town in the southwest of England. It's got one provider, but they haven't been able to recruit anyone suitably qualified. So they haven't been able to do any immigration legal aid work since they got their contract in 2018. The whole eastern side of the east of England region, so Norfolk, Suffolk and Essex, has some asylum dispersal, but no providers. Wales has providers in the far south of the country, but only one very small provider in the northeast corner and nothing else for the whole of Wales. So big parts of the country, nothing across the border in Cheshire either. So big parts of the country where there's no legal aid provision at all. But I also talk about advice droughts where it looks on paper as if there's provision and there really isn't. So Cambridgeshire and Northamptonshire, for example, has four providers with contracts and they were allocated between them 750 matter starts or new legal aid cases that they're permitted to open per year between them. They actually did between them 107 in the last contract year. But that breaks down into one that did 56, one that did 50, one that only did one, and one that didn't do any legal aid immigration work at all, apparently for the same reason as Swindon, that they don't have anyone qualified to do the work. So there's a lot of access points, which is the sort of administrative area of the the legal aid agency, have at least one firm which has a contract but hasn't done any legal aid work. So even where it looks like there are providers, it can be illusory. The reality may be that there's no one available to a person that needs advice. And as I said earlier, a lot of them are having to reduce their legal aid capacity to survive the, the the legal aid funding regime. And so often you can't find anyone that has capacity to take on a case. Your book is called The Legal Aid Market Challenges for Publicly Funded Immigration and Asylum Legal Representation. I am starting to see why you called it that. Uh, that lack of any legal aid lawyers is certainly a challenge. Are there other challenges that you refer to in the book? Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, financial viability and the administrative demands placed on providers. So say the sort of five key issues with the the sort of the, the funding regime, one, the fixed fee and the funding overall are too low. So providers are doing a lot of work effectively unpaid. Secondly, there's too much financial risk placed on providers so it's shifted so that so much of the risk is on them um, that that's very difficult to manage thirdly the delays or the lags between doing the work and getting paid cause very serious cash flow difficulties for a lot of firms um, the fourth thing is that transaction costs so all the costs of doing legal aid work apart from the actual casework, especially around the auditing regime and the administrative demands are too high, but they're not factored into the price that's paid for doing the work. And then fifthly, the funding structure explicitly assumes, and this was right back in the Carter review that set up this current legal aid market, assumes that there are economies of scale available to providers, but there aren't or those that there were had already been maximised long before the current funding scheme was devised. So all of that creates that conflict that I referred to between financial survival and quality, which can only be reconciled by reducing the quality of work or limiting client access. Things like um, 
the CCMS, the online case management system, caused enormous problems and financial and resource costs. Um, the auditing regime, which is zero tolerance, which which um, gives people contract notices and contract sanctions for very minor transgressions like forgetting to tick nil, 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 nil down the income and capital column for a partner for a client who has no partner. So it clearly makes no difference. But then you have a contract notice and you have to self-review a number of files and you have to appeal non-payment on that file. And it's all stuff that takes up inordinate amounts of caseworker time that takes them away from doing legal aid work. It's all unpaid. So really quite enormous challenges. A lot of the problems you're talking about are administrative. It's, you know, you could, it sounds like you could improve things an awful lot, even if you put no new money into the system just by changing how the legal aid agency deals with things. Yeah, absolutely. So the funding, the amount of money is an issue, but it's not necessarily cheaper to create a dysfunctional system. So I talk a lot in the book about systems and how you can't devise an effective legal aid system in isolation. You have to look at and really understand what the demand is, what the needs are, and craft the advice and representation system around that. You have to look at the drivers of demand in the system. And that goes for legal aid on its own and for the whole of the asylum system. So if you start with an asylum system that's very slow moving, where it takes two years to get an initial decision, then people need representation for the whole of that two year period instead of, say, the six months. If you start with legal aid funding structures that prevent lawyers from front loading the evidence gathering until there's a refusal and has to be an appeal, then you drive up demand for appeals work. And by the way, that works very differently in the Scottish system. Poor quality decision making drives up demand for legal aid work. So especially poor quality decisions on trafficking, which then drive a demand for judicial review work. So in the book, I pick apart a couple of cases and the drivers of demand in each one and the cost consequences of that demand of, you know, just that poor quality decision making. So no, it's not simply a question of not enough legal aid money to go around because you could save on all those shifted costs of having a dysfunctional system. But it's just a question of how to create a system that works, taking account of the asylum process, the court system and legal aid and integrating it. I'm exhausted just hearing about all these uh, <laughs> you know, problems and dysfunction. Uh, Naomi, you, you know, work on the ground. Are these things that Joe talks about something you recognize in your own work? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I won't try and exhaust you further. But it is um, <laughs> the fixed fee um, issue um, comes to light. So it's very unsettling when you suddenly hear of a lawyer offering to take on 100 Napier cases, for example, in a single week, only to find out that they're a sole practitioner. But that's the fixed fee system that creates that. And then what you do find is that decent lawyers are all suffering from burnout because they're doing vast amounts of pro bono work to prop up this completely unviable system. And like Joe says, with all the constant audits and all the papers and files being nil assessed. So we had a, a situation earlier on in Napier this year where a migrant help were telling us that no Section 95 letters were being generated or there was a, a huge backlog in it, sorry. And um, so we were, if we were lucky enough to find a lawyer, they were saying, well, we need evidence 
<laughs> there was no evidence and so how you know there was just all, all of this takes an enormous amount of time and then um people getting their interviews on usb sticks and then the usb sticks had lost and it was just it, just all of that time that takes up for a legal aid lawyer, lawyer to mess around without actually dealing with the the actual case and then charities like jrs have to plug the gaps and then on top of that we had um the vast majority of cases at Napier were are being given notices of intent under the new inadmissibility rules. And that creates a further inbuilt delay into the system. So although the lawyer may have done the initial work on the case, it may be a really long time before they're ever, ever paid for that work. With criminal legal aid, the crisis becomes tangible because there are no lawyers available to cover a trial and the trial is postponed or it's not doesn't take place for three years you have something to point to to say this system is in a mess what's the equivalent in, in immigration law how would we know we've got to a point where the system has broken down is it more people being uh, detained for several years and getting paid out is it people being deported wrongfully like what what, what can you identify i once worked with someone who had an outstanding claim for asylum and had a JR pending and he was seriously mentally unwell I would say that he probably didn't have mental capacity but he was being segregated and again once you um, isolate people from from any access to lawyers then we found out later from a subject access request we got the notes and the guards were asking him to withdraw his claim constantly and he was refusing to sign any papers and at one point they were so frustrated that they uh they said why don't we try the nurse because he's got a good relationship with the nurse ask her see if he uh if he'll oblige and eventually he did sign and and he was deported and uh i would say that was completely inhumane and unlawful and i doubt very much whether he would have survived um and but where are their voices how you you just never hear do you how how would anyone hear about that in some research that i recently carried out in london someone from one of the support groups was explaining how a woman that they've been working with had gone back to her husband who had previously been violent to her and it was at least partly because she couldn't find anyone to make her application for indefinite leave to remain under the domestic violence rules within the time scale required. And she panicked and went back to him. So that means that a rule that's expressly there to protect people from serious harm was left ineffective because of the lack of access to, to immigration advice. But it is less, less visible than in the criminal justice system, because in criminal work the trial gets listed and then it gets postponed but here in in immigration and asylum it's more that the the application never gets made so this woman was already voiceless and then she disappeared completely unless and until she comes to some worse harm and he then pops up in the criminal justice system but otherwise you you just don't hear about it absolutely let's move to solutions before we wrap up Joe, you've touched on some ideas around improved administration. You've mentioned that in Scotland things work differently, but you've also said that this is a complex systems challenge. There's lots of moving parts. Uh, what are your sort of uh, bullet points for how the system could be fixed? So the first thing is that the government needs to abandon the plan to declare cases inadmissible in the sovereign borders and whatever it is, Bill. I 
cannot think of a more dysfunctional way to run a system. You import a whole load of delays, a whole load of extra legal complexities. And all of that can only be challenged by lawyers working under legal aid. So an absolute catastrophe in terms of good administration. And then, as I say, they need to look at asylum as a whole system with legal aid integrated, build it around need. And that goes for all of social welfare, legal need for housing, for benefits, community care, creating systems which meet need instead of escalating it. So better decision-making processes would absolutely be a good start. And then really for the the government to understand what legal aid lawyers actually do, look at what goes into preparing a case properly and have just a much more collaborative relationship. And I think on that one, you need to then bring in people like the National Audit Office as well, who form part of that system, because the reason that the legal aid agency has this very sort of over the top, in my opinion, auditing regime is that its predecessor, the Legal Services Commission, had its accounts qualified by the National Audit Office for four years in a row. And they were criticised for sort of stewardship of public money and so on, too many errors going through. Errors were occurring because the system was so complex. So it's a big job, <laughs> but it can be done with the right sort of approach. Naomi, you're laughing. Uh, these are crazy <laughs> ideas, are they? Never going to happen. <laughs> no, I agree. I just like the way you said it was a big job. No, I mean, it's absolutely right. If we don't look at it as a whole, it's just all this tinkering just always ends up engendering more problems. And And I just wanted to add maybe, you know, not ghettoizing people in army barracks and reception centres also doesn't help. And we need a bit more transparency and maybe start by listening to the people at the heart of the system. Well, I was going to conclude by asking both of you what do you think the prospects of these uh, good ideas, like not ghettoizing people and not having terrible bureaucracy, what the prospects of that actually happening under this government are. But I think the answers to that would be too depressing. <laughs> wind up. No, I think it's it's a real moment of opportunity, though. You know, as the as the bill goes through, it's a real moment of opportunity for people to challenge that. But there are teams in the Ministry of Justice of clever and committed civil servants who are working on access to justice, who are looking now at understanding legal need. And there are certainly academics and lawyers out there they're willing to help them get there. So it is a moment of opportunity to actually change that and to go, okay, we've hit crisis point, we need to sort this out. It's it's just whether there's a political will to do it. Well, that's a much more positive note to sign off on. <laughs> and hopefully those clever people in the Ministry of Justice can be provided with a copy of Joe's book, which again is called The Legal Aid Market Challenges for Publicly Funded Immigration and Asylum Legal Representation. It's published by Policy Press and it's out now. Uh, Naomi, in the interests of fairness, would you like to plug anything while you're at it? Thanks, CJ. Um, I will take the opportunity to plug the legal London Legal Walk, 18th of October. JRS is taking part. Please sponsor our team if you're not sponsoring your own teams. And, um, and also everyone on the streets for the Welcome Refugees Rally on the 20th of October. Charlie Good, good causes both. And thanks to you both again, Joe Wilding of Garden Court Chambers and the University of Brighton and Naomi Blackwell of Jesuit Refugee Service UK. I'm CJ McKinney and this has been the Free Movement Podcast. We'll be back on the 8th of October for our usual monthly roundup. Bye.
until then thanks for listening